0: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
2: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where a woman from the right
3: and a woman from the left accessorize the news with a fresh perspective. Welcome to Pantsuit Politics. This is Sarah Holland from the left
1: and Beth Silvers from the right, and we're here again to accessorize the news with a fresh perspective
3: we're so honored and excited to hopefully have lots of new listeners this episode itunes gave us a little love in the new and noteworthy section and we have lots of new followers on facebook and twitter so we're so excited to have everybody um we actually were going to take this week off for christmas but we are enjoying all of you people so much we decided to go ahead and record also there was too much good debate stuff to talk about
1: <laughs> that's right and i love talking some of that debate stuff with folks on twitter so um, just please keep engaging with us. I also wanted to give a shout out to our producer at the beginning of the podcast. Usually we wait till the end, but, um, Sarah's husband, Nicholas Holland does an awesome job for us and we really appreciate it. Definitely. So we are going to spend, we're just going to like bask in the waters of debates today. Cause I was thinking earlier today, like the only thing I like better than watching debates is talking about them. Mm-hmm. So we're going to totally indulge.
3: It's all, it's all presidential election stuff all the time. This episode,
1: 2016, you know, we're almost there. It's amazing. I mean, it's
3: so true. It's so true. It's It's going to be here before you know it. So
1: finally, all the stuff that just as nerds have loved is becoming relevant. <laughs> so true. Hooray. Yay. So we'll start with the pearls, which is our section of the podcast where we pull out some bits of news that we think deserve a little bit more attention. And Sarah, I'm sad. I oh, know. Lindsey Graham suspended his presidential campaign today, and we knew Lindsey Graham was not going to be the president. Right. But he had some important things to say.
3: Right. I don't really know how the math works on that when you're like, I mean, because presumably so many candidates, especially on the Republican side right now, like, they know they're not going to win. So there's some other um, agenda at play. And so I don't really know, I guess it just depends on what you're trying to do, um, how long you can last and how long you can kind of serve out that purpose.
1: Well, Lindsey Graham clearly was in the race to focus the race on national security. And I think he did that pretty effectively. Now, certainly he would have done it more effectively if he had made it onto the main stage. And we'll talk more about this in the suit, but certainly these like second tier, this undercard debate concept was really bad for him. He couldn't have as much influence as he would have on the main stage. Um, The thing that I love about Lindsey Graham, though, is he just says whatever he thinks, and you complimented him for this last week. And then today, when he dropped out, he showed again that he really is just about America's position in the world, because he said... Even if Donald Trump is elected, even if Hillary Clinton's elected, whoever's the commander-in-chief, I'm here to help them. So I'll do whatever they need me to do to help keep America safe. I thought it was a very classy way to... And, and I'm sorry that we won't hear more from him.
3: Well, we're still hearing from he who shall not be named. We are. In, in droves. <laughs> uh, I mean, well... I had a talk with a friend of mine where I'm like, we just have to constantly remember the math of, it just starts to feel like you hear from him so much and you start to feel in your mind, like he has all these supporters and, but the truth is that the real numbers of the fact are only about 25% to 30% of people identify as Republicans, Democrats are a smidgeny smidge higher, but not by much. Um, and only a, a smaller... I mean, what is his polling number right now?
1: I don't know. He's somewhere between 30 and 40. And That's what I, I thought. Say 40, so 30 like, and
3: 40%, 40%. Yeah. So even, let's say, for, it's still just 40% of 30%. Even, we'll give him 40 because we'll assume some independents are supporting him. I mean, it's just not... It's not a huge number, even though he seems like... From the media coverage, it feels like that. But we just have to remember our, remember the numbers. <laughs> That's what I tell myself in my moments of
1: panic. So the latest with our friend, The Donald, is that he, um, on Meet the Press, had some, like, really flattering things to say about Bla- Vladimir Putin. And yeah, normally, that's, yeah. Normally on this podcast, we're all about, like, criticizing people you disagree with. I think Putin, like, that might be taking it a smidge too far.
3: Right. No, this is not, this is not I'm being reasonable. Vladimir Putin, Putin is not, like... Somebody from the other side, he is a borderline dictator and really not someone to be admired.
1: You know what really bothered me was the the language that Putin is making mincemeat out of our president. Ugh. I think you can disagree with our president all day long. It's sort of like I can criticize my sister. You can't. You right. Right. Right, and, and so we can have disagreements with our president, but as between our president and Russia, our loyalty is with our president. Right, I don't know exactly. I think I always think though that like this one is too far, and it. Oh yeah, I've I've hard. stopped. Yeah, no, I've
3: given up on that. I don't think anymore. Oh, this is going to be the one that's going to end Trump's campaign. I just stopped. I've, I just. I feel like that's not what's. That's not what's going to happen. So clearly, it doesn't matter what he says. He represents something to forty percent of thirty percent, and that's just that's it. And that it's not fine. It's a little scary, but yeah, I've, I'm past the point of thinking. Oh no, this is going to be it. This is the one that's going to undo him. Because clearly, I'm not really sure there is that point.
1: So I have a friend and a colleague. Who I really respect, who's super smart, and we're talking about Trump. And my friend says, "Look, I just think that he would be disruptive in a way that we need." What? So I don't, I don't agree with that, obviously. But it did help me to hear that, and I needed okay. to hear something that helped me on this because. I have been extremely close-minded about Trump since his campaign began. And so I do want to say I, I get it to an extent. I get the hunger for disruption. What I would say is maybe in a different global economic and social environment, his brand of disruption could work. I'm nervous that we need more serious leadership today and and we can't afford that experiment. But that's just my perspective.
3: Um, Yeah, we've talked about this a little bit. I don't really think that the idea that we have this outsider come in and shake things up, like – I've told people this. I can't remember if I've actually ever said it on this podcast, but like, I like the movie Dave too. It's a great movie. And I think we all love the idea of like this little outsider comes in and brings in his like friendly hometown accountant and just whips everything to shape. That's not how it works. Y'all this is the real world. Our government is huge. Like this is not, this is not like we just come in and whip things into shape situation. Like that's not how this works. And it's scary to think, but I, I don't think that he, I think truthfully, you know, there's been some stories coming out about the management of his campaign in Iowa, and he was supposed to have um, people in all the different caucuses. And so, so supposedly, you know, a thousand people lined up by a certain date, and he had the call ready for all these people, and there were like 80 people on the call. And I think that that represents Donald Trump's MO in business, and it's going to represent. Donald Trump's M.O. in politics, which is he is understands marketing and he understands PR, but he's not really that good at leadership and management. I mean, he's not this bastion. He's not Warren Buffett, right? I mean, he doesn't make that. He doesn't. He's not this bastion gold standard of business leadership. He's been bankrupt a couple times. Like, I don't, I don't really think that's who he is. I don't think that's who he'd be as a president. And I think ultimately to win the pre, uh, presidential nominee and most certainly to win the general election. There needs to be some management involved, right? This is a big, running the country is a big deal, but also running the presidential campaign is a big deal.
1: I agree with all of that. He has real and substantial talents, but a lot of those talents are directed towards self-promotion. And so he seems larger than life in every category instead of just the categories that he really has gifts for.
3: Well, and as far as him being disruptive, I understand that there are a lot of things in our country, in the demographics of our country, in the political landscape, in our economic landscape. Like, that's a, there's a lot of change going on. I get it. It's scary to a lot of people. But, you know, I don't really think Donald Trump is the answer. Just honestly.
1: Well, so we aren't going to say nice things about Putin, but we are going to say nice things about people with whom we disagree. So we always do a little feature of criticizing, or not criticizing, praising someone from the opposite party. And Sarah, do you want to start this week?
3: Sure, I'll start. I just thought of somebody. I, although I'm not a regular viewer, I've seen some clips recently of his handling of He Who Shall Not Be Named. And I think Joe Scarborough is doing... Some good works, some good works over there. Just shutting it down like that. I really liked the video clip where he was like, you know what? We're just going to go to commercial. We're done with you. We're moving on. Like I kind of, I feel his handling of that. I like it.
1: I love Joe Scarborough.
3: <laughs>
1: you, you talk about, I saw this on morning, Joe. I
3: saw this on morning. So I figured you were.
1: I love Joe Scarborough. Joe Scarborough is my kind of Republican yeah. I don't agree with him on every single issue, but, like, who I, – I don't know. I don't need to agree with anyone on every single issue. Right.
3: That's a ridiculous standard. In fact, we should do a podcast on that. Everybody, stop pretending like that's the standard to support or vote for somebody.
1: We should. It's, it's not. just not going to happen. And it's not. It, these are human beings. <laughs> You're a human an, being. They're a human being. Come on. That's how it works. What an uninteresting world it would be if that so, were the standard. Um, but – but I love him because he—he he is my kind of Republican, right? He's thoughtful. He's—he's he's curious about other positions. Mm-hmm. I watch mm-hmm. MSNBC all the time because I'm just curious, right. you know. So, um, I totally agree with you about Joe Scarborough. Not surprisingly, yeah, I figured you would. I want to compliment Martin O'Malley just keeping with our debate theme, Um, and I will have some things to say about him that are not so complimentary later, but what I want to start (laughs) with is saying that I thought he really tried to make lemonade out of a very bizarre and sexist situation during the ABC debate, and we'll talk more about that too, but my praise for him is just that he came out swinging for his wife. So, strangely, he was asked whether his wife would need to quit her job as a district court judge in Maryland if she were the first lady and he said the perfect thing which was Katie will do what she wants to do right it's up to her why are you asking me why are you asking me what my wife's gonna do it's weird it's the only positive thing that you could say in response to a question like that and he said Mm -hmm. it and I think he meant it and it was consistent with how he's talked about his family in the past he seems to have real respect for his daughter's he seems to be committed to his family and genuinely happy to talk about them in a way that feels very authentic to me. So I like it. I agree.
3: I agree. So, next up in the suit, this is a good lead way. We're going to start talking more about the repub- recent Republican presidential debate and the recent Democratic presidential debate, including the bizarro turn that one took towards the end. We'll start with the Republican presidential debate. So um, I'm kind of excited, actually, that we didn't live tweet these so we can talk about them on one of the podcasts.
1: So there is a lot to say about these debates. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I did a little picture on our Facebook page of sort of my overall. um, Oh, yeah. I loved your little.
3: mm -hmm, I loved your little categories.
1: So in the category of. Um, more of this, please. <laughs> I put Rand Paul because I thought this was a really good debate for Rand Paul. He came out and had a lot of things to say about foreign policy and data collection and sort of this gave him a chance to get into his lane where he is really differentiated from the rest of the Republican field.
3: You know, I just thought of something when you were said that is, you know, The maybe the one upside of Lindsey Graham leaving is it's going to open up a little more oxygen for him, right?
1: I don't know because they are the two opposite ends of the spectrum.
3: Just but it's this sort of we're serious, we're the serious people about foreign policy. Stand, you know what I mean? Like that's I feel like that's the the role both of them occupy in a way. Is we're the ones who really know about foreign policy. We're the ones who really talk about it in a way. And I feel like if Lindsey Graham is is out. I don't know, I think, and and sort of they're, they're both these kind of straight talkers, too.
1: Well, I agree with that. I think Rand Paul has to be really careful holding himself out as the foreign policy guy, as Lindsey Graham does, because, like, a Chris Christie will come in and crush him on the substance of what his foreign policy is, and I think Rand Paul is in a very different place than a huge segment of the Republican Party, but that said... His voice I think is very important in the modern Republican Party. That libertarian bent, this sort of America is not the policeman of the world. And by the way, I said this on Twitter during the debate. I don't like the phrase policeman of the world. I wish <laughs> we could all just say we're not gonna we're gonna be done with that now. Yeah. We'll retire that one. Yeah. Listen,
3: I'm just gonna be I'll I will I hope they don't take away my liberal card. I'll confess a couple times. Like, especially a few interviews he did on The Daily Show, I thought, well, that that was not so bad. I didn't hate everything that came out of his mouth. Like, that's happened to me a couple of times with Rain Paul.
2: Well, I think that's why,
1: uh, like, a year ago, maybe 18 months ago, he seemed like a formidable real option. Yeah, he really did. hmm Because of that, he and he was talking about the Republican Party again as big tent, right? There's space for all kinds of views. We want to attract all kinds of people. We can no longer just be the party of white men. I mean, he has some appeal. I think he lacks some work ethic and some organization (laughs) and some discipline. Yeah. But I liked him in this debate. I think it would be good for the party to hear more from him, even though I think that's maybe not where the party ultimately lands on foreign policy. I think his voice is important. Yeah. People who I don't really want to hear more from, (laughs) but I am going to, so I need to just fasten my seatbelt. are Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz, who I will. So let me be fair. These two guys are very skilled debaters. Right. They just are. And I don't know if that artificially inflates their numbers at this point in the process because debates are some of the only events that national poll voters have access to. Um, they, they were good. I mean, they're good on their feet. They're articulate. They're charismatic. Uh, they went after each other a little bit in a very... Um, skillful it almost felt like jousting to me or something. Like it wasn't it didn't feel personal at all. It was just more like, I am a fantastic orator and I'm going to use that <laughs> to undercut you. No, sir, I am. You know, they they just kind of it was interesting to watch. However, I don't I'm just not feeling either one of these guys. Ted Cruz bothers me enormously in a hundred ways. I loved SNL talking about how he has the most punchable face. <laughs> He
3: does. He does. Um, I think the quote of the day is when I, on my on my blog's Facebook page, asked about people's stance on fruit and chocolate. We got into a, an actually important debate on chocolate. And we all decided that white chocolate is not chocolate, and they need to stop calling it that. And nobody likes white chocolate. And you, you said, white chocolate is the Ted Cruz of chocolates. <laughs> that was the best. I well, what I have a question, though. Whatever happened to the, I just saw, um, I saw the beginning of the sort of, we're going have to investigate this, but I wasn't sure if anything came of it, about that he might have, um, breached security and talked about things he wasn't supposed to, basically. Did you see this?
1: I did. I don't think anything has come of that. And, I mean, I was watching. I didn't feel, I didn't feel that, like, pit of your stomach feeling that you, that you might if something like that really transpired. I think too much was probably made of that. Made of it. Yeah. I don't
3: know. I thought it was an interesting kind of thing. I just... I think that, I mean, maybe Chris Christie, but I just feel like, truthfully, if I'm thinking about the race, I I know you're not a huge fan, but I feel like Marco Rubio is the best challenge because he's young, because he's exciting in a way. I don't know. I don't, but it's not Ted Cruz, and I guess he's, I don't know who's going to win, but Ted Cruz is way too extreme and he's going to get beaten up so bad with all this Koch brother money he's gotten. And the fact, I mean, I read, I, my perception of him was strongly colored when the government shutdown was happening. And I read several things that he was basically using that as fundraising for his presidential campaign. He,
1: he is just too extreme. He's, and I found that,
3: and I found that really despicable. Like people are, they don't have jobs. Like, they're not getting paid things. It matters when the government shuts down. And that you're using this as, a, like, a, a political ploy. was, and Because he, he was really kind of owning it. And really, this is my thing, you know. And it just was really gross to me.
1: Well, that's the thing with Ted Cruz. He intends everything he does. He is extremely bright. Yeah. He is very calculated. He is v- exceptionally disciplined. And
3: except about his wardrobe I sent you I'll, I'll post this in the show notes <laughs> Jessica had a really good thing that was like who is dressing him nothing fits nothing's iron what's happening
1: well it's true he, but It he is, is true he is very he knows he knows what he's doing he's he's doing what he intends to do and all of that makes him far worse in my view now he appeals to a certain portion of the Republican base but again when you're talking math, That does not a general election win. Right, exactly. So another person um, to talk about having kind of a moment in this debate, and there are mixed reviews on this, and I have real strong feelings about it. Jeb Bush came out swinging against Donald Trump. And he had all these sort of Trump insults clearly in the can right? And when mm. it's his turn to talk, he unleashes. And his big one is, you know, Trump's going to be a chaos president. When he said it, I thought, that's true. That's a good word to use. That's that that's the disruption people are looking for. But then I thought, wait a second, that's the disruption people are looking for. I'm not sure chaos hurts him right. with people who are already in Donald Trump's camp.
3: That's a good point.
1: So online, I have read a lot it seems like journalists are all over the place on this. They don't agree. Some people are saying Jeb kind of found his groove again by attacking Trump, and others are saying it falls flat. My opinion, and it hurts me, but I I think it's completely ineffective.
3: Yeah, I don't... I I think that the, with Trump, when you insult him and you make, you know, you're, you pull this sort of, you don't know what you're talking about, and especially as sort of like we're in, we know the inside baseball, you haven't, you're chaos. You don't know what you're doing. It really insults his supporters who already feel completely forgotten by the mainstream political establishment. And so the, you know, the tactic to take is not this guy's an idiot because then that reads to the people who support him is you're idiots too. The tactic is to say, we understand how you feel but this is why we are better equipped to deal with your concerns, not him. You know what I mean?
1: I do. I completely agree with that. And Jeb Bush needs to answer the question, who is Jeb Bush other than Mm -hmm. brother and son? Yeah. And I feel like he doesn't have a coherent answer to that right now. And what makes me angry is that I think there is a very compelling and good answer to that question. He's so qualified. He was such a good governor. He is smart from all accounts. He is hilarious and sarcastic. (laughs) None of that's coming across. I just, I think Jeb ought to fire every person who works for him because I think that they are making him something that he's not. When he delivers these insults against Trump, I just listen to it and think, you don't you don't talk like that. Like what is this supposed to be?
3: And I feel like he I feel like I had a stronger perception of him before this started. It's like they've somehow managed to erase his humanity. Yes. You know what I mean? Like before it started I had this vision of him as sort of like the more human brother. The brother that messed up. The brother that like was more honest, was like really in it what didn't have the perfect family story and i mean i just had a i had a better more human perception of him before
1: this campaign started i think he might have felt that way about himself too sadly yeah you listen to him talk and you can tell that the life has just been sucked out of him in this process and maybe he never really wanted to do this anyway i don't know i believed him at the beginning when he said i want to run joyfully mm And I guess I'm just sorry that he hasn't had that opportunity and that we haven't had that opportunity because I think he would be a really good president. And I'm just, I'm bummed about how this whole thing has turned out for him. I don't think it's too late, though, but I'm saying, I mean, I guess I'm just, Jeb, meet me at camera three. (laughs) I really want you to start over. Like, the people who are running this for you that put these, like, weird sort of snarky things on your Twitter feed and that build websites like Chaos Candidate 2016 or whatever it is, that, that just doesn't feel like you and I want you, you know? Yeah. So hire some people who will just let Jeb be Jeb to go back yeah. to our favorite, the West Wing, in that way. <laughs> Absolutely. So you felt like
3: Chris Christie came out strong, though?
1: I did. I think Chris Christie... If he can do well enough in New Hampshire and get the organization going after that, I think he is the best hope for the establishment, in my opinion, at this point. Mm. And also, I don't really get what establishment is supposed to mean. I guess I am an establishment Republican. That's what I'm concluding from all the coverage. (laughs) I don't know what's wrong with that, necessarily. But, you know, he has executive experience that shows in these debates. He has um, experience in a very tough political environment, and that shows in these debates. I think he would be formidable against Hillary Clinton in a general election. I think that would be a substantive and interesting and intellectual discussion that would really advance the dialogue in United United States politics. So I I thought he was really, really good. He doesn't get enough airtime um but what he gets he makes the most of and he doesn't whine about not getting enough airtime and he's not rude trying to elbow his way in. I know he's thought of as a bully but he he doesn't he he doesn't come out as a bully in in that way of like interrupting people and trying to get around the debate rules.
3: Right. Right. Well, and I just and that's not an easy thing to do. No. It's really not. It's hard. I think it's probably harder than we all realize, the ability to assert yourself without. I mean, we all saw it with poor Jim Webb. It's real easy
1: to sound like a whiner. Well, a lot of the Republican candidates have done this, too, in interviews where they just, oh, we can't get any coverage because Trump's sucking up all the oxygen in the room. Christie never says that. Mm-hmm. He's just out there working hard. He says every time, I'm going to stay the course. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to trust the voters. And I, I hope that strategy works out for him. Another person who I thought was very good, and you can tell that I have a little bit of a governor bias. I, I think <laughs> we need a governor to be our next president. I like a strong executive. But yeah. I, I thought John Kasich was good. Now, I don't think John Kasich does well in debates as a general matter. He's just not the right Demeanor for it, um, or at least in this group. But I would say John Kasich gets like the pantsuit politics award <laughs> <for> the, <laughs> because he was very conciliatory. He kept talking about uh, uniting the country, bringing people together, working across party lines, and and I buy all of that from him. I just I believe it. I think he's done it in Ohio. Um, so I'm I'm a big John Kasich fan. I would love to see him in the VP seat, and maybe that's what this is about at this point. Right.
3: Well, it does seem, though, even though we felt like nothing could happen to Trump, and it felt like that a little bit for Ben Carson, but I think we've finally reached the point where he has run out his clock.
1: I think that's right.
3: Um, I'm. I mean, when you have people going on record in the Times that you don't know what you're talking about, I mean, that's a problem.
1: And he just doesn't, you know? Yeah. I wish that we were a country where I, I wish our world was simple enough that someone who has had an enormously successful medical career was qualified to be president. That would be mm-hmm. lovely if you didn't yeah. really need to understand geopolitical conflict. Right. Um, but but again,
3: do. it's not Dave. Yeah. Great
1: movie, <laughs>
3: not real life. Doesn't work like that.
1: And, you know. I was more disappointed that I just felt like Carly Fiorina didn't show up for this debate. Um, Mm. She has been so effective in previous debates. She didn't get a lot of time. The time she got, I thought she was less effective. And I can't put my finger on why. Maybe it's because I feel like most of the field is improving with each debate. And she started so high that she doesn't have that same sense of momentum. Right. Right. She just, she wasn't great, and she did try to interrupt a lot, and, and it did not work for her. Wolf Blitzer and Hugh Hewitt really controlled this debate, and, and I, kudos to them. They did a fantastic job. It left the moments when she kind of tried to get in there looking a little childish, I mm. thought, which was, which was disappointing to me. I like her, um, so, so it was too bad, but that's what it was, and I will, I will be honest about it.
3: So there's well, are kind I, of go ahead I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, and I'm sure there's I, I'll I'll stick up for her and then I'm sure there's some gendered perspective there. Like when a man interrupts, he looks assertive. When a woman interrupts, she's like, you know, there's definitely a perspective. I think when people when she's not quote unquote following the rules.
1: I think that's yeah, that's fair. You know, I I don't know. I it 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 did feel a little bit um unpresidential to me because yeah that's
3: that's the thing though that's what we're talking about that's why it's so hard chris christie what he's doing that's a that's a very hard thing to do it is it's it is. a hard line to walk we are special breakfast people here at pantsu politics but not just when beth and i are on the road the truth is i want something warm from the oven every saturday morning and sunday morning it's just the truth it makes it feel special makes it feel exciting i don't want to work at it so the first time i ever saw wild Grain It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's help, com slash pantsuit. Terms and conditions apply.
1: Totally different tone at the Democratic presidential debate. Um, yeah,
3: one of my favorite things I read is um, Rebecca Traister. I'm not ever sure if I'm saying her name right. Do, have you? Did you ever read Big Girls Don't Cry? I've read parts of it. I haven't. read Oh, all of it's it. so. It's like one of my favorite books. It helped me deal emotionally with the fallout from 2008. (laughs) I needed to deal with some things. Um, That book really helped me. But I I read her review and she was like, "I, I don't understand why the Democratic Party is trying to hide this away. They look smart. They look capable. They get a law. Like... Uh, you know, a few times when Martin O'Malley tried to go after them, they Bernie and Hillary just kind of banded together and shut it down. Like they're super complimentary to each other. Like, why are we trying to hide this away?
1: Debbie Wasserman Schultz really should lose her position. I think. Yeah. For her handling of this entire process, it's really not good. We should. This. I mean. This.
3: I mean you know, we're Monday morning quarterbackery. Is that the right phrase? I don't do sports analogies very well. It is. (laughs) Okay, good. Um, Well, I just feel like, you know, nobody saw Trump coming and I don't know what they thought was going to happen when they set the schedule. But now, you know, the way this is going, I mean, it's just such a clear difference.
1: And I get that a lot of this is about the fact that the the Democratic Party doesn't really want a fight that, you know, they yeah. want Hillary to sail through this process and kind of hold her powder for the general. But I think having this debate on the Saturday night before Christmas really furthers the negative narratives about her. Right. And, 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 and in a way that she doesn't need. She's good in this yeah, forum. She's, she's really so good. good. She's so
3: smart and she's just so on those. I mean, when you're talking about experience, like this woman has been doing this for a very long time. (laughs) You know, like she, between being first lady and even being first lady of Arkansas. I mean, it's not like she, I mean, she's just been involved in this stuff for so long and being the first lady and then being a Senator and being a presidential nominee and then being secretary of state. Like sister can think on her feet, you know, (laughs) like she's got this down.
1: I'm interested to see how, um, with a little time, the very clear foreign policy differences between Hillary and Bernie show up.
3: Mm. Well, because... and he was a lot stronger, I think, on foreign policy than he was after Par- at the, in that debate after Paris. It seems like he'd worked on
1: that some. I think that's right. And and the thing that really jumped out at me was hearing the, the answers to the questions about sort of what's our priority in the Middle East? Is it... Um, getting rid of the Assad regime, or is it ISIS, or is it both? And and Hillary was very much of the both mindset, and Bernie was not having it, and, and yeah. talked about how she's a fan of regime change, and he's not, and it destabilizes the Middle East, and we've got to get clear on our priority. Assad is not a threat to the United States, but ISIS is. And you could see in her face, you could almost watch her mental math of, you know, that's going to sound right to people yeah. That, that Assad is, is not a threat to us, but ISIS is. But also if you understand the situation at all, you get that Assad um, creates the fertile right, ground. Exactly. Exactly. Well, and I just
3: think that, I mean, there's a little bit of me that's like, if I was her, she's much better than I would be. Cause I would just be like, no, but I was secretary of state and I know things you don't. <laughs> Like that would be my debate approach. Hillary's clearly the professional, but I just you know she was there. She saw this blow up. You know Anne Marie Slaughter in Hillary's defense. Anne Marie Slaughter, who was her big advisor before she wrote the Women Can't Have It All, and that became her kind of what she's known for. I mean, she was the one, and apparently you can read through these th- now that the emails are public. You know, she was like, "We have to, we have to do a no-fly zone. We have to inter- we have to get in there and interfere in this because it's just going to become a fertile land for." I mean, they pretty much predicted this. But what, what really bugs me about this sort of blaming things on Hillary, even though she was there, and I think she should get credit. I think you got to be careful with the blame because at the end of the day, she's not making the call.
1: Yeah, it. I I agree with that. I think it's. I think she knows. What What's interesting to me is watching her thread that needle. She knows yeah. that. She's right. acutely aware of it.
3: Mm-hmm. There's not much I don't think she's acutely aware of.
1: Well, she's certainly aware that her real fight is the general election, and you saw that throughout this entire debate. And she went very centrist on a lot of issues. She talked a yeah. lot about no new taxes for middle class citizens. Um, she was, every proposal that came up, she said, I think we've got to explain how we're going to pay for this. And mm-hmm. I thought, wait a second, am I watching a Democratic debate? I'm
3: <honest."> Yeah, no, and I think that she, um, what I thought was interesting, I've read some write-ups that she's been supportive. You know, um, Christian Gillibrand is like her her little apprentice. You know, took over her Senate seat. They, you know, share a lot. And apparently, Christian Gillibrand has put forth, I'd love to talk about this on a later podcast if we want to cover her family leave. She's put forward, a, it's like a fifty a week tax for everybody so that we can have paid paid family leave. Um, so she has this bill and Hillary supposedly supports it. And so how are we going to, you know, there was a lot of like, if you support these kind of things, how are we going to pay for them? And I don't I don't know how well she answered that, but I think well, it's an important thing to talk about.
1: She she definitely was playing to independence, I thought, yeah. in some of these comments. Also, she and everybody else on the stage was running hard against Donald Trump. And I don't understand that strategy at all.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, because it's, it's an easy, but also I just, I kind of feel like let's not, let's not do this. Let's not crown him. I don't, I don't I don't want to do that. I don't want to make it sound like he's the front runner. It just, it feeds this. We don't want to create an inevitability narrative here at all.
1: It just feels cheap to me. It seems like, especially because the difference is in debate format, and we'll talk about this in a second, but the Democrats have all this space in this election in this primary season to be about their ideas. Right. Instead of this kind of below the belt thing. I as a Republican voter who could be persuaded to vote for a Democrat if if we if our party nominates someone who I view as extreme or unrepresentative of my values, I don't appreciate running hard against all Republicans based on Donald Trump's comments. Right. It just turns me off completely. Right.
3: It's, it's tricky because you also, I mean, they also have to come out strong against some of the crazy stuff he says. That's, I mean, you you gotta be clear. I don't know if the debates always, I mean, they've got, they've had plenty of time to do that and have done it. I'm a particular fan of her love. Trump's hate. Big fan of that. I don't know who thought that up, but they should give them a raise. Have you seen this? I have. Yeah, that's great.
1: But it just seems unnecessary, though. Like, we're not there yet. Hopefully yeah. we won't be there. If we are there, you've got plenty to say and plenty of time to say it.
3: Well, I mean, I don't know. I disagree a little bit. I think they have to be strong on him right now because he's just ta- let me, for the same reason Republicans do that. He's c- taking up the oxygen. I think there's a space for them to say this is unacceptable. And this is, I mean, it would be a lost opportunity if they didn't take that moment to say, this is unacceptable, we all think it is, and this is the difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party right now. I mean, because as much as I logically understand, because I know a lot of moderate Republicans, I mean, they can't, they, you know, they're not running against, they're not running against the actual makeup of the Republican Party. They're running against the Republican candidates. Right. And right now, that's who's out there. And that's what they that's what's coming across is a sort of extreme between Cruz and Trump and Ben Carson and some of the things he says. Like, you know, like they're not they're not saying they're not saying they're not running. Like I said, they're not running against Republican voters. They're running against Republican candidates. And that's what they're saying right now.
1: Well, I would keep it at that then. I mean, that's where I think the opportunity exists to say, These are the loud voices in the Republican Party right now. I don't think that represents everyone, but I want to be a person who sets a vision that all Americans can get behind.
3: Well, clearly we pivot better than basically everyone, so they should probably just call us up.
1: That's true. Yeah. If you would like the high road. Yeah.
3: (laughs) If you would
1: like an expert
3: on how to pivot in the high road, call us up, Hillary.
1: That's right. Well, speaking of coming out strong, I mean, Martin O'Malley had some five hour energy before this debate. (laughs) Uh, I I don't know how I don't know how well it served him. I don't think it did. I mean, I get that he had to do it right? because he's drowning in this. So he so he had to do something and he tried and he has interesting things to say and I think would be a good candidate in another. In another year, I, that's that's what you say about a lot of these people this year, right? It's just in right. another time. But I, I think it it may, it looked like a hail mary. Maybe she,
3: maybe he's running for some like a cabinet position. Maybe he's holding out for like education. No, probably not education. Secretary of state? No, I don't think that would work either. I'll think up something for you, Martin. I'll get back with you.
1: Yeah, he's he's beating everybody pretty hard to later come in and say, How about I work for you? But
3: Oh yeah, that's a good point.
1: I don't know. What what was definitely a different tone, the data breach came up. Mm-hmm. And and Bernie I gotta give Bernie a lot of credit here. He just said, yeah. I'm sorry. This isn't what we're supposed to be doing and we apologize. Yeah.
3: And she was like, That's great. Nobody wants to hear about this. Moving on. I mean yeah. there is a it's a really adult exchange.
1: It was. now, I and I think he set the tone for that adult exchange. Yeah. I t- I tweeted right before this happened. I said I think that Hillary ought to say nobody wants to hear about Bernie's damn data breach. You know, like <laughs> on her emails, and that's pretty much what happened. He said I'm sorry. She said people don't care, and they moved on. And I liked that. I thought that yeah. was that was good for everyone.
3: And I mean, I think overall they did they kind of did a good job of distinguishing themselves, but also sort of working together in a weird way.
1: They did. And, you know, she, she, I think some of that will make her stronger. She, she got some good practice for the general and she, and she didn't need a lot of practice. I mean, she is good at debate. She's going to be a tough one.
3: And I just thought I felt a difference. I kept, I always think about this and I, you know, I love Barack Obama, but I will never, I don't know if I'll forgive him. I might've forgiven him, but I will never forget the, you're likable enough, Hillary. Do you remember that moment? There was a primary debate among Barack Obama and Hillary, and I don't even remember what the setup was. I think they asked her, basically, like, people don't like you, and they went to him, and he was like, well, you're likable enough, Hillary.
1: Uh, I do remember that, Yeah, That
3: was rude and sexist, dude. And I feel like Bernie has been incredibly respectful, even with disagreeing with her. Like, I don't, I don't really, I've never felt any, I think she's a stronger candidate now, and that's part of it, but, like, and she's the front runner. <laughs> but I don't feel any of that for him and he gets mad props from me for that.
1: I agree. So so the debate is just lovely. It's rolling along. We're having these really substantive exchanges. Um I'm I'm interested in what's happening. I think that Martha Raditz is so informed and it's asking great questions. And then it got weird. It got Why? real, real weird. So Oh, this is a good
3: point. Well we're gonna play the audio for everybody so we could they can hear about the
0: First ladies, as you well know, have used their position to work on important causes like literacy and drug abuse, but they also supervise the menus, the flowers, the holiday ornaments and White House decor. I know you think you know where I'm going here. You have said that Bill Clinton is a great host and loves giving tours, but may opt out of picking flower arrangements if you're elected. Bill Clinton aside. Is it time to change the role of a president's spouse? Well, the, the, the role has been defined by each person who's held it. And I am very uh, grateful for all my predecessors and my successors because each of them not only did what she could to support her husband and our country, but often chose to work on important issues that were of particular concern. Um, Obviously, Mrs. Obama has been a terrific leader when it comes to young people's health, particularly nutrition and exercise, and I think has had a big impact. So whoever is part of the family of a president has an extraordinary uh, privilege of not only having a front row seat on history, but making her or maybe his contribution. And with respect to my own husband, I am probably still going to pick the flowers and the china uh, for state dinners and stuff like that. But I will certainly turn to him as prior presidents have for special missions, for advice, and in particular, how we're going to get the economy uh, working again for everybody, which he knows a little bit about. I do want to follow up here for each of you. And
1: so this weirdness of- comes from Martha Raddatz, who I'm liking, you know, the whole yeah. time. And I don't know. I was just so frustrated that Hillary Clinton is having to talk about flowers in China in the middle of a presidential debate. It broke my heart.
3: My favorite write-up of this again from Rebecca Traster, She's talking about why. Why are we talking about the exactly what you're saying with the the China and the um, the weird question and she my favorite part was she said it left Hillary stuck she could not have told us that Bill would oversee the meal planning and china patterns because a he wouldn't and b clearly the idea of a man a former president doing such silly lady things is hilariously awful enough that it merited a debate question but she also couldn't tell the truth which is that she would delegate it to a staffer because that would make her sound imperious and unfeminine so what we got was Hillary Rodham Clinton assuring the nation that if elected president she would still be picking dishes and making decisions about flower arrangements which is red hot garbage because the truth is that president. Hillary Rodham Clinton would be a very, very busy being president. I know when she said that I was like, You're not gonna do that. Nobody thinks you're gonna do that.
1: No, and and that was a prepackaged response. I mean, to her credit, she was ready for it. She didn't get angry about it, she didn't whine about it. She did the gracious thing and and said something.
3: And, like it's, like, it's an interesting think piece to think about how the role of the first spouse will change if it's a man.
1: It is, however, not
3: an interesting debate question. Okay? Like, if you want to get Bill Clinton in a room and ask him that, feel free. If you want to ask these women who you're asking their husbands to speak on their behalf with Bernie Sanders and Martin O'Malley, that's fine. Do that. But to ask all of them about... That's what was so bizarre. It wasn't just the rampant sexism of asking her about... Are you basically? Are you going to be picking? Who's going to be picking out the flowers? Who cares? Nobody asked that Barack Obama that. It's just the weirdness of asking these people in 2015 to speak for their spouses.
1: Well, and the only reason we're talking about spouses is because Hillary Clinton is married to Bill Clinton, who's right. you know a former president and a, an interesting spouse as a former president.
3: Mm-hmm. To be
1: sure, I, I don't hear anyone in the Republican side saying, you know, let's let's talk about your wives and what they would do. Or anybody asking Carly Fiorina, that yeah, question. that's what I was going to say. They didn't ask Carly
3: anything like that
1: because it's insulting
3: and it's a stupid question. And there's bigger. They didn't talk about climate change, but we can talk about China patterns. No one, in still in any of the debates, has asked about reproductive
1: rights. I don't go. Whatever. Here's another know. stupid question that came up in the end of this debate, which was will corporate America love you? And Hillary handled that, you know, in her way and said, well, everyone should love me. And and I thought that was a, a, a nice deflection. I'll give her some points. It's it's those kinds of things are why I dislike her so profoundly and also kind of tip my hat to her. And, and that gave Bernie a chance to do his stump speech. But... That is also a big turnoff to me as a Republican voter. Like corporate America is not this evil empire that's separate from the rest of America. ABC mm-hmm. is asking that question. ABC is yeah, seriously, what Disney? Come on. It just, that annoyed me too. So I, I thought it all went really well until the end. And then it was like, we should have pulled a plug on this 30 minutes ago um, because we've all lost our minds.
3: Well, and it's not like they didn't have enough substantive things to talk about. They did. That's they right. didn't even get to some of them.
1: The debate jumped the shark for me, for sure. So I thought it might be nice to end by talking about, like, what should these debates be? A huge takeaway for me in watching these two debates back to back. The Republicans just have too many people on stage to have a real debate. Mm -hmm. Watching the Democratic debate, it makes me realize that I haven't yet seen a true Republican debate because they can't exchange ideas and flesh things out in the same way that three people can. Right, no,
3: I agree. I remember feeling this a little bit with last time with us, because I mean, I feel like at one point, I mean, you had you had Biden, you had Edwards, you had her, you had Barack Obama. Who else did we have? I'm missing. I mean, there's several, and it just always felt sort of like a Miss America pageant where everybody was giving these like, how will you, how will you achieve world peace? You know, like it was just very. No, they weren't talking to each other, right? Which is what Bernie and Hillary were doing really well. They weren't really engaging with each other. They were just giving these bite pieces because they don't have time. Right. And that's a problem.
1: And I think, I don't understand why the Republicans can't just agree that, like, we're going to change this up. You know, we're going to do one that has a couple of rounds and we bring... Three people at a time up or shoot, do some brackets. I would enjoy yeah. that, right? Let people face off, and the winner stays, and somebody else comes. I don't know. Have a little fun with it. I think people would love a Republican Party uh, that doesn't take itself so seriously and and mixed it up in that way. And I think a lot of the Republican candidates would say, "Bring it." I I would enjoy that format. They they need a either people need to get out of the race, which P.S. they do. <laughs> Or the, we have to create a forum where they can exchange ideas as freely as the Democratic candidates are able to exchange ideas.
3: Well, and yeah, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with the idea that there needs to be fewer of them. And I just feel like that Donald Trump is this master negotiator. No, shouldn't he be able to... Make this happen.
1: It's he should be able to make this happen. I
3: mean, he's he's told us several times how good his negotiation skills are.
1: Another thing that I would love to see is for the debates to be um, mixed up in terms of the moderators, and maybe even not have it be so moderated. I, some of the most revealing moments from the trail come from town halls, mm-hmm. and. And I mean like a true town hall where they sit down with people like us, you know, just regular people, but who people who are paying attention and who are interested, not sort of like, here's the professional behind the desk and, Oh, we're going to throw it to Debbie in Omaha. Debbie, what's your question? Because they, they always pick weird Debbies to begin with, (laughs) you know, like those questions always feel like they were dropped from the sky. So that's not helpful and it's not conversational. And I think the, I think you learn a lot – one of the most useful things about these debates is what you learn about the candidates in terms of personality. Right.
3: Well, and the, even with the Democratic debate, even with just the three of them, there were times where, like, I felt like Bernie and Hillary were doing something real, and they'd be like, time's up, time to talk to Martin O'Malley.
1: No, 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 no need for that. That's right. We can... Just let us all hang out and talk. I feel like yeah. that would be so beneficial to the public. So I I would love to see some changes. It's just, this is all important, and it's hard to watch when it's the same thing over and over again. One of the things I said on our Twitter feed during the Democratic debate was that um, this is all too important to be happening on Saturday night before Christmas. Mm -hmm. And someone responded, and I wish I could remember the Twitter handle, and said, um, basically, no, it's not. And. And so, so I said, well, you know, I, I really think it is. Like, understanding their differences on foreign policy, this this matters. And yeah. the person said something like, you know, we should just send the military in to um, get it done. I think that's what it said, get it done. And so, I, you know, my feeling is we need to understand what get it done means to our next mm-hmm. commander-in-chief. And, mm-hmm. and And in addition to the policy differences, which are very real and very important, Those style differences matter, too. We've been talking a lot on our podcast about President Obama's style in responding to the terror attacks and handling the climate change issues. You know, there's a lot to be learned from watching these people in these settings. So I I think we ought to have lots of them. I like that we have lots of them. I think we ought to have them in um, varied ways so that we can learn more.
3: Well, and do we know the upcoming schedule? How many do we even have left?
1: Well, I know today Fox came out and said it's going to have another one. I think on January 28th on the Republican side, right before the Iowa caucuses. Um, I also feel like there's one more this month, but I'm not positive. We'll have to post that on our pages. Yeah, we'll look that up in our show notes.
3: Well, we've covered the debates, both sides, and now we're going to move on to the heels. just posted my top five favorite books. Favorite? Favorite books for 2015 on my blog and I'll share that post. But the one I was going to share specifically on this podcast, Beth, is um, Ta-Nehisi Coates Between the World and Me. I just finished it recently and I was just telling friends last night, I've read good books. I've read smart books. I've read insightful books. I've read books that have really changed the way I think about things. I have never read as powerful a book as this one.
1: So what did you find so compelling about it? I mean, he's a great writer.
3: He's a great writer. Um he has a he had a very So the the book itself is a letter to his son about being a black man in America. It is primarily about um race, although I hesitate to say that because I mean his sort of one of his central points. The first thing one of the first things I read in the book is he says that racism is the child, no, race is the child of racism, not the father. And I thought, whoa, mm. that makes, that makes me think about some things. Just the idea that we've invented this and, you know, and so he talks about, there's a lot to it, but he's very unapologetically, I don't know the word I want, not tough, but just powerful and in his just kind of unapologetically honest about what he thinks this means. And he's sort of unapologetically atheist and what he thinks that means to this discussion and not creating, you know, I'm a person that really believes in the sort of arc towards moral justice. You know, I think we're all getting better. I think the human condition is getting better, but he just has this stance of, you know, this is not a re- like slavery was not part of your redemption story. That's not what this is, right? This is not, these were real people who suffered generations and generations of people who lived their whole lives under slavery. And we have to be honest about that. And we have to look that in it's very, very, very ugly face. And the truth of that, instead of, you know, making ourselves feel better by saying everything's better now, it doesn't matter. That doesn't redeem what happened to them. Um, So that's the part that really sort of broke my brain wide open was that discussion. But I mean, there's a lot of, it's it's sort of a short book, but man, I don't know how much more I could have taken of it because it's just so intense and powerful and honest and insightful. I really can't recommend it highly enough.
1: Everything I've ever read of his is very dense and, Mm -hmm. and I have to read it over and over to fully digest what he's saying. And maybe I still don't. Um, Mm -hmm. the, The yogi in me um, kind of summarizes him by saying he seems like a person who is comfortable with discomfort. Yeah, he is. Oh, yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. He can just be in that Mm -hmm. uncomfortable space. And so I really respect that. I'm going to have to read this book.
3: He He got that MacArthur Genius Grant for a reason. I'll tell you that much. Well, I mean, he has two articles that are very famous, and I I tell people the two ones he's written for The Atlantic so far. There's one on reparations and one on the African-American family in the era of mass incarceration that we're hoping to talk about on a later podcast. But the reparations one, I mean, that that issue is not an issue, political issue taken seriously by by really anyone. And I went to the article thinking like, oh, yeah, reparations. And by the end, I was like, yeah, mm -hmm, we need to get all the money away. Let's give it all.
1: He's right. Let's do it. Where's the money? Let's give it away. Like, I was ready. He had me convinced at the end. Yeah, he's going to go down as such an important voice of our generation, I think. Absolutely. So what's your book? Well, so I have to mention briefly, since we spent this whole episode on debates, that Jim Lehrer has written a book about debates that is fascinating. Tension City. It's been out for a couple of years. Um, And I have, I just pick it up now and then. And it's one of those books that you can just go back to at any time. You don't really have to read it in sequence. Um, And it's, it's a fascinating look at history and how presidential politics have changed over time with, with the use of debates and televised debates in particular. Mm. Um, Great section on uh, the debate where Michael Dukakis was asked about whether he would favor capital punishment um, for someone who raped and murdered his wife. You know, oh. Jim Lehrer just writes that so well, and, and it's it's really, really interesting. This so, is my
3: least favorite. I get that, because I'm opposed to the death penalty, and I get that all. Well, what if they murdered your child? Really? Do we think that's a a, a good way to engage about this issue? Okay. All well, right. All right. Fine.
1: Well, and you really get a perspective on kind of how people in the the press community reacted to that question what it did to Michael Dukakis in the race. I mean, he just, he really writes it well. But the book I wanted to talk more about is by my beloved Chuck Todd, um, (laughs) The Stranger, about Barack Obama's first term as president. I wanted to read this book because I just want to understand President Obama better. You know, I voted against him twice. He is not my cup of tea. But I think there's something really fascinating about him, and I kind of just wanted to dig into what makes this guy tick and and Chuck Todd does that brilliantly well, and-, and I
3: think with President Obama, I mean, if you are a person, I mean just his the just his story is unlike any presidential story. And his, you know, his narrative and his perspective, and obviously this is what he's getting at the book is just so different. I mean, how could it not be fascinating if you're any kind of student of human nature?
1: Well, and also a student of leadership, because Mm. I really understand the desire to go in and fix things. Mm -hmm. I've had that my whole life. And I have also my whole life had the experience of I'm going to go in thinking I can fix this. And then, oh, it is not as simple as it seemed from Uh the outside. And I'm happy that I had that experience more on the level of, like, being the sorority president, for example, (laughs) than the president of the United States. So um, I think this book is a really... It it is not um it is not a celebration of President Obama. It is not a critique of President Obama. It's very objective. It tells you a lot about the people he surrounds himself with, which I also find fascinating. I think Rom Emanuel is such an interesting character in in life and in this book and Yeah, he is. If if you want to understand more about what's happening in Chicago right now, I highly recommend picking up this book and just you know, pulling out the wisdom about Rahm Emanuel. Very interesting remarks on Donald Trump. This book was written a couple of years before Trump got into the race. Um, It just shows, I think, how much Chuck Chuck Todd understands the current state of U.S. politics.
3: Wait, he writes in this book about Donald Trump? He sure does. What?
1: Because of the whole birther thing.
3: Oh, I forget about that. I blocked that from my memory.
1: Yeah, I had blocked it too. And when I opened the page and saw Donald Trump's name, I was like, what? What is happening? Have I gone through time and space? Is something bent in the universe? But no, it it was about the birther movement. And it's really fascinating and well-written and kind of chillingly foretelling. (laughs) So it's a great book. I think that whether you love President Obama have disdain for him or anything in between, you'll come away from it understanding him better and having some empathy and compassion. But perhaps, like me, you might also come away thinking, I'm not going to be voting for any more freshman senators for president. (laughs) Um,
3: Oh, so when you talked about time and space, I want to add one more thing that's not a book but is so great. I posted it on our Facebook page. That skit on Saturday Night Live. With Kate McKinnon as Hillary Clinton now, and Amy Poehler coming back as Hillary Clinton then, and then Tina Fey as Sarah Palin was the funniest. Did you see it?
1: It was completely the funniest. It was the best part of that entire episode for sure.
3: But from the, one of my favorite was the, I, oh, you changed your hair. Yes, people didn't like it, so I changed it.
1: Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It was so, it. Kate McKinnon is so she's killing it. Oh, good, it's she's in Sisters
3: too. She's hilarious. She's in that new Ghostbuster movies. She was on the show I watch. Um, what there was another. Sh- she was on. Um, oh, that show with. Uh, Oh I'm lost it from that the people he's on uh, on the street and he yells at people on the street he runs around with the celebrities oh, with yeah. him I don't know his name but I know he has a sitcom on Hulu which is very f- funny and she was on that and I mean she I just feel like she's just and she was in the Ryan um Gosling episode of Saturday Night Live and everybody broke character cuz she was being so funny she's just killing it
1: she is killing it and I read You know, just before we started recording, I was glancing at my Twitter feed and I think somebody on Fox News, it may have been Dana Perino, was talking about how Kate McKinnon is really doing Hillary Clinton a favor because you almost believe that Hillary Clinton is actually funny because Kate McKinnon is so funny as her. Well, she had a few – hey, Hillary Clinton had legitimately
3: funny moments in the debate, especially, like, the bathroom break. Can they not get her a longer bathroom break? That's ridiculous. That was was so funny. (laughs) And she's just like, sorry. You know, like, I mean, I think she is funny, but not, like, Kate McKinnon funny. But listen, uh, Rebecca Tracer, who's been coming up a lot in this podcast in Big Girls Don't Cry, talks about how powerful those portrayals on Saturday Night Live were of Hillary Clinton and – Um, Sarah Palin and how important they are I mean she never saw she could said she could see Russia from her house Tina Fey said that right you know but everybody thinks Sarah Palin said it like that's how powerful that could be
1: that was that was a great skit and I I mean I love Saturday Night Live anyway and I thought they did a great job with the opening to on uh, the Republican presidential debate Um, so you know it's They're they're doing a nice job spoofing. Did you see
3: the Did you see uh, the George Bush one with Will Ferrell last week? I did. (laughs) So funny. You miss me, don't you? You miss me. Plot
1: twist. I'm the smarter. (laughs) Yeah. Yes.
3: (laughs) I thought that was so great. But I loved, and I thought they did a really good job of of the capturing just like the weird things that happen in Sarah Palin's speeches now, and they went into the. I mean, it's like word salad, and that's really what it's like to listen to her now.
1: It is, and also you're like. Will Ferrell kind of foreshadowed um, George W. Got a nice shout out from Hillary Clinton during the democratic debate too. He's becoming like everyone's favorite Republican in retrospect. It's amazing.
3: I just want to say, I started that trend you several did. weeks ago on podcast P- Plant you politics. Thank you very much.
1: You totally did.
3: Trend sayers. Well, again, thank you so much to all our new listeners. We're so excited to have you. We hope that everybody has a very, very happy and safe holiday this coming week. Um, We'll be back next week with another episode. Our intro, interstitial, and outro music is 4th and Starlight Road Instrumental by Minden and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 3.0 International License. And um, That's it.